Hello, and welcome to the Agents of Change in Environmental Health podcast. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, and also the editor of Environmental Health News and Agents of Change. This podcast is brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. It is frigid up here in the North Country where I'm at. I'm one of those odd people that really enjoys it. It's like big sweaters, lots of soup. We're giving the fireplace a good workout. I hope wherever you are, things are going well as our country maybe kind of, sort of, starts to make progress in the COVID fight. I also hope you're enjoying the podcast. It's been such a pleasure for me to get to know these folks and hear their ideas for bettering environmental and public health. If you've missed any episodes or if this is your first time here, you can find us on all of the major podcast platforms. So check them out, follow us, leave us a review, and go out and tell your friends. This podcast, of course, takes time and resources, and we are so grateful for the support we receive. Today, I'd like to highlight one of our supporters, Rachel's Network, which is a community of women at the intersection of environmental advocacy, philanthropy, and leadership. You can find out more at rachelsnetwork.org. Today's guest is the awesome Crystal Vasquez, a PhD candidate at the California Institute of Technology. Crystal is a chemist and talks about her work teasing out the big impacts from tiny compounds, her push for disability-friendly labs, and the often neglected intersection of pollution and people with disabilities. Enjoy! All right. Super happy to be joined now by Crystal Vasquez. Crystal, how are you? I'm good. And yourself? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm doing just great. I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I wanted to start, if you could tell me a little bit about your your upbringing and kind of what shaped your interest in going into science and more specifically chemistry, because I know that's your focus. Yeah, so... As for science, as a kid, my mom took me to a bunch of science museums. Uh, I lived in the Bay Area, so I got to go to like California Academy of Science, the Exploratorium. Uh, I think there was the Lawrence Hall of Science, maybe. I, I don't know. It's it's a vague memory. Um, but I was exposed to science pretty early. And so my interest kind of developed from there, specifically my interest in the environment, since a lot of these museums tend to have like a sustainability, like go green kind of theme to them even even back then. Um, For chemistry, I really hated it at first, but I think that's because I really didn't like my teacher for whatever reason. Um, Also, I feel like chemistry, kind of like physics, is kind of thought to be like this very mass-heavy like subject, kind of like a a boy subject, quote-unquote. And so I was very turned off by it because I was like, oh, I obviously couldn't do that stuff. Like, I'm not good at math. Um, but I, when I went to college, I had a much better professor and he made an effort to kind of relate chemistry back to like real world problems. Like it wasn't just chemistry is for mad scientists who want to make, I don't know, math or for, phys- or for um, pharmacists or anything like that. It was like chemistry is broadly applicable and it can be found in every field. And in my field specifically, um, it's atmospheric chemistry, which I don't know, I think is kind of like a nice puzzle. It's like atmospheric chemistry is a combination of like geoscience and analytical chemistry mixed together. It's like interdisciplinary. And so I think a lot about how like you want to measure you want to measure this thing in the atmosphere that is like 
super tiny in concentration and it has like X and Y chemical properties and I have like A, B and C tools. And so I need to match those together in order to get an answer, develop a method that combines them to get an answer of like how much of it is in the air and then what does it do to our air quality? So you're doing some really cool work along those lines, developing ways to measure compounds. I, I believe I read this right, called oxygenated volatile organic compounds. That's and I was wondering right. if you could tell me a little bit about this work and what it looks like for us non-chemists. Yeah, so I guess I'll start with a little bit of background. Um, so we're going to take away the O for a second. And so we're going to focus on volatile organic compounds or VOCs. And these are emitted into the air and they can be emitted by anthropogenic or man-made sources like fossil fuel industries or uh, car exhausts, or they can also be emitted from natural sources like trees, oceans, swamps, fires, etc. Um, but once they're emitted into the atmosphere, they don't really last for very long, um, some a few minutes, some a couple hours. But when they react, they oxidize or they add oxygen into their chemical structure, and that's when they're called OVOCs. So that's another class of compounds. Um, these OVOCs um, continue to react, and eventually down the line, they either form um, tropospheric ozone or aerosols, specifically secondary organic aerosols. Um, and then they can also contribute to carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, um, depending on uh, different compounds. But that uh, question that we always ask in atmospheric chemistry is how do they lead to these um, finalized compounds and also to what extent do individual compounds like contribute um, and both questions are really hard to answer and mostly that's because well there's a couple of reasons but the one I focus on specifically is that OVOCs are really hard to measure um, for one they're only in concentrations of like parts per billion parts per trillion so that's really really tiny and they're also really reactive, so it's hard to make them last long enough in an instrument to measure them. Um, but I also focus on the fact that OVOCs are very like broad, like there's hundreds and thousands of like molecules in this class. And some of them look very similar to the instrument detector, even though they may react differently in the atmosphere. And so my research kind of focused on developing an instrument that's better at telling different OVOCs apart so that we can observe how they behave in the lab or even observe how they actually behave in the actual atmosphere by going out into the field. Are you still conducting that research or were you successful? Did you did you make a tool? We we did make an instrument and it's very successful. Um, we have or I'm looking at now uh, what happens when anthropogenic pollution and biogenic pollution mixed together and how that impacts our air quality. And we are using this tool just to like pinpoint some chemistry and, and kind of finalize that like chapter of atmospheric chemistry here. Um, my, the compound I'm looking at specifically is isoprene, which is emitted from a bunch of trees, but like eucalyptus and oak trees. And it's like one of the most common biogenic molecules in the, in the atmosphere. And so I'm just kind of looking through its chemistry and seeing how it, how it um, affects ozone and how it affects NOx, which is a compound that comes from our cars. So if it reacts with NOx, it can either continue on and react ozone, or it can trap it in the um, chemical structure and then stop ozone. So we need to know which one is more important. And that's kind of the research I'm focusing on right now. 
it's fascinating to think that it's not just a matter of bad stuff gets in the air and, and then it's there and we know it's there, but there's all these other processes at play. That's really fascinating work. And congratulations on the, the model you developed, the instrument you developed. Thank you. So this is a big, broad question I've been asking everybody. And uh, going from thinking about, you mentioned going to science museums and kind of having this early interest to where you're at now, um, what is a defining moment that shaped your identity? Ooh, that's hard. Such a hard question. Um, I think there were a few moments, honestly. Uh, one big one was I randomly took a, sci- um, a class in the summer after my freshman year. Um, at that time, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I think I just switched my major to chemistry because I, I originally came in as pre-med. And then I took this intro to environmental science, I think it was called. And that's when I was like, oh, so my interest in environmental science and like, you know, sustainability and my interest in chemistry can actually come together and I can do things with it. Like, this is fascinating. Um, a second one was just learning. I could do research. I am a first generation college student. And so I, I actually didn't know what a scientist did. Like no one ever told me. <laughs> and I'm the first in my family to like go into science. And so I think I don't really know when this like aha moment happened. But um, yeah, learning that I can do research, that I can, I, can be a, I can be a scientist and I can like make a living out of answering these really wild questions of like, why does something happen in the world? I don't know. Yeah. I, no, I think that's a really good point. I, when I went into science journalism, I didn't know what a scientific study was. I mean, I knew there was published things uh, that came out of these experiments, but the idea that, uh, that there were these journals and all of this research coming out, not only on things like chemistry that I think we all kind of think of as very sciencey, but you know, social sciences too. Um, and anthropology and all of that. So I, I don't think your experience is, um, is that different. And maybe that's just a failure of our public school system <laughs> that none of us know what a science, scientist does until late in life. I mean, it might be. It might also just be there's a lot of hidden curriculum that like certain people aren't exposed to. So like in grad school, a lot of the people there have scientists as parents or have professors as parents. And so right. they they grew up in that environment. But I'm just there like... I didn't know I could publish anything in a scientific journal or like I didn't know how to make an instrument or how to run an experiment. Like these are all things that I just kind of learned on the fly. And so I don't know. It's just wild. The different juxtapositions of people (laughs) that we have. Right. And I got to peek into this um, to your world a little bit. So in December, you wrote a fantastic piece for Chemistry World talking about how uh, inaccessibility in labs and science more broadly continues to push out disabled scientists. And you talked about your experience dealing with fume hoods, tight spaces. I don't even know what a fume hood is. Um, high workbenches and narrow aisles. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about not only the experience of writing the piece and perhaps some ideas you have about how science and scientific labs can start to address this um, this insidious discrimination. Yeah, so this piece was really fun to write. Um, One of the editors at Chemistry World actually found me on social media because I talk a lot about disability in STEM. And so it was a nice little happenstance. Um, But yeah, like you said, it's a really kind of broad issue. And there's so many pieces and components to it. But um, I guess I'll start off with numbers. I think in the article I used UK stats, but we're in the US. So I'm going to talk about that. Um, I think... 
So this is coming from a piece in Chemical and Engineering Muse that I saw from 2019. And I think it's using NSF data. But less than 10% of employed uh, chemists identify as disabled. And for those who obtain a PhD in chemistry, I think it's down to less than 5%. And in comparison, there are 25% or 25% of the US population is disabled. And so that's a huge discrepancy. And there are many, many factors that go into this, but the one I specifically focused on in the article was the inaccessibility of labs. Uh, all STEM students at some point in their education take a chemistry class with a lab. And if that lab is inaccessible or the professor or university isn't willing to accommodate you or there's no accessible equipment available, you're not gonna pass that class. Like it's just physically impossible. And if you are lucky enough to get accommodations or if you were like me and weren't disabled in undergrad and became disabled later on, grad school doesn't get any easier. In fact, I think it gets worse because there's usually less accommodations associated with research labs than there are in classes or teaching labs. And so I wrote down one of the passages I really like that kind of sums it up that I wrote what it says. Um, when you consider the fact that laboratory experiences are crucial to the excess of all scientists and engineers, it's no wonder that disabled people are pushed out of STEM or prevented from enter entering it in the first place. We've built and maintained an ableist system that favors certain physical or mental attributes over others. And that makes it so that these characteristics become a prere prerequisite for working in science. And so, yeah, it's, it's really disheartening, but bringing awareness is one thing, but then we also have to ask like, what can we do about it? Um, and so I, one of the things I talk about in the article is universal design. And this is a term coined by um, an architect, architect who I believe was named Ronald Mace. Um, I know that fun fact, he helped advocate for the first accessibility focused building code to be adopted in the US. So that's pretty cool. I learned this while I was preparing for this interview. <laughs> um, but anyway, universal design uh, is the idea of designing a place that's usable to the largest amount of people possible. And that is regardless of their disability status, their life circumstance or whatever. And this can be applied broadly to a lot of things. Um, and so if you apply it in the sense of chemistry labs, some examples were adjustable height fume hoods, which are the places that um, chemists usually do chemical reactions. So you're not getting fumes everywhere. Um, but making them go up and down because they're usually at standing height would be key. Um, automatic doors in my lab, my door is really heavy. And so if I'm using a mobility aid or my hands are full or my wrists hurt, I, like it's really hard to get in the lab. Um, I think I mentioned pull cord alarms. Uh, sometimes if people fall or lower to the ground, like pushing the fire alarm system is kind of hard to reach. Um, and even like safety showers or eyewash stations, some of them have bars underneath, so you can't go all the way towards them if you're in a wheelchair. Or some of them have difficult um, like mechanisms to operate, like if you're blind or you have mobility issues that way. So it, it depends on the lab and like universal design is not going to be a cure-all. Like you can't accommodate for everyone, um, but you can get like you can check off the most common accommodations and 
And then that gives you more time and money and effort to put into the people who need extra accommodations and make sure that they're feeling included in the lab space. So much of this podcast and Agents of Change is is looking at racial issues, gender issues, um, really deep, deep rooted inequities. And the one thing I will say about what you just said is it seems like it's just um, the differences that gives me some hope is that we could do that tomorrow in a lot of labs. Um, you know, these aren't, these, these are just design, design flaws. These are, these are people not thinking things through. Have you seen changes at your lab or, or other labs? Um, I know, I think it's the American Chemical Society has a booklet, um, that like talks about like features of an accessible lab, but I don't see a lot of movement. I think there's just not enough awareness. And I think universities don't prioritize disability like there's a lot of effort towards other marginalized groups and I think that's fantastic and I'm so happy to see that but disability is never included in that diversity I don't know top topic diversity issue and so it's kind of pushed aside and it's like oh it's a it's a medical problem it's a it's a you problem like we don't have to do anything and then they they don't funnel money that way and so accommodation offices are underfunded and professors don't have funding to be able to actually like renovate their labs or, or do that things. And like NSF grants or diversity grants, they don't have any like specific, uh, specific fund where you can like funnel money that way. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> a funding problem. Yeah. It's always a funding problem, a funding and awareness problem, honestly. Right. So how was the act of actually writing it? Uh, just just communicating uh, your your work, your thoughts to a to a broader audience is different than science. It's different than what you do in the lab. How was that experience for you? Yeah, writing for the general public is way different than writing for a scientific audience. Like I had to get in a whole different mindset, and I know that some of my science writing definitely bled into that and got edited out eventually. Um, Because I don't know, I personally feel science writing can be very convoluted and jargony and passive voice and all those things you don't want in an article going out to people. Um, Yeah, it was fun. I actually realized, so I used to write for um, my own blog back earlier in grad school where I just gave advice about applying to grad school for people like me, like first generation college students or marginalized people. Um, And that was fun, but that was very casual because it's like my own personal blog. So this is like a mix of like, I need to write professionally, but I also need to write like accessibly and make it approachable to someone who's never been introduced. I don't know. It was fun. I really enjoyed it. I I would like to write some more. (laughs) Well, what if I told you you will write more? (laughs) I will write more. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's why I'm here. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I said, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> exactly. So I know you've you've thought a lot about the intersection of of disability and pollution exposure, given your your work on air monitoring. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about this intersection, why you feel it's one of the more neglected topics when we talk about environmental justice. Yeah. So I'll start off by saying that for pollution and disability, I think the general public has a very much like cause and effect type mindset. And by that, I mean, like, pollution can cause disabilities, period. That's it. So for the Flint water crisis, you think of, like, all of that pollution caused maybe, like, rise of cancer rates or or whatever. Um, and for L.A. air pollution, you might think of, like, 
the rise in asthma or lung disease. Um, and so first immediate intersection is pollution causes or worsens disability and illness. Um, but I think we take this a little too far, <laughs> honestly. Um, I think that sometimes people get the idea that we should stop pollution because we don't want to end up like those people, like other group, rather than what I feel the actual message should be, which is we should stop pollution because people have the right to access clean air and water. And by accessing clean air and water, they don't have to have additional factors contributing to poor health. So it's preventing it from getting worse, not preventing disability, because you can't prevent disability. It's natural and preventing it is honestly eugenics, like <laughs> plain and simple. Um, so then when this weird ableist message comes about, we start getting like these fear mongering headlines. Um, the one I see the most is air pollution is linked to developmental disabilities. Um, and so the original study that that's actually talking about is actually titled let's see, The Risk of Exposure to Air Pollution Amongst British Children with and Without Disability. Very different message that it's sending. And um, I don't really want to dive too much into the paper because I've only done a few read throughs, but I will say that the stated rationale that I read was that people with intellectual disabilities commonly have respiratory disorders. Like it's just a, a pretty common comorbidity that they um, see in this population. And so increased exposure to air pollution might cause in health inequities. So it's not like air pollution causes this thing, it's air pollution might harm this population. And they also found that like these types of disabled people do actually do live in higher pollution areas, but it couldn't actually make any correlation based on the data they had. So this whole like air pollution causes X is not, it's just misinformation, which is, I feel like a problem we have nowadays. <laughs> um, but let's see, there's a very real consequence um, that comes from this fear of environmental issues causing disability because it really directs where our funding goes and which research we do. So there's a lot of focus on how pollution contributes to an area's, it's called burden of disease. And this is defined as the years of life lost due to premature mortality, plus the years of healthy life. This is a quote, healthy life lost due to disability. I, I really do not like this definition, but I don't make the rules here. Um, but basically this is saying, how does pollution affect healthy people? And so there's little research talking about how pollution affects people who are already disabled or ill. So it's kind of like once they're disabled, public health and air quality research, like they don't care about you, you're done. <laughs> and that's, I think that's really dangerous because pollution can lower quality of life of disabled people. And we can circle back to the study I just mentioned about intellectually disabled people and air pollution. They're more likely to have lung issues in the general population. So living amongst air pollution disproportionately harms them. But there's nothing really talking about this except for maybe this one study that. Yeah. Um, and then also disabled people are more likely to live below the poverty line. And this is for a number of reasons, but it includes underemployment. But this means that they're pushed into the less wealthy neighborhoods, which are the neighborhoods that are more likely to experience high levels of pollution thanks to environmental racism and classism. And so 
then we're having all these questions of like, how does this increased exposure impact their specific disability? Does it lower their quality of life? Probably, but we don't know. There's, there's no research on this subject. And so I'm really thankful that there's becoming more research on environmental racism, which focuses on the same types of areas, but you can't, you can only get so far. You really need to start taking disability into account to get the full picture of how how this affects people like as a whole. <laughs> That's really fascinating. And I know I and EHN have been guilty of, of the headlines, the type of headlines that you mentioned. Um, and it, it's a matter of adding context. It sounds like what you're saying. And this isn't this one-way street of pollution causes this equals bad, read this and be alarmed. Uh, It's taking the time to provide more context. Yeah. Or even say like X doesn't, because usually papers aren't like X causes Y. That's not really how science works, but it could be like X affects Y population. Here's Y kind of thing. And so how do you see your work advancing and and pushing towards social and environmental change to some of the things you just mentioned, whether it's environmental injustice, um, the neglect to take disability into account in these studies. How do you see your work in the lab kind of translating into some social and environmental change? Yeah, that's hard because like a lot of my research is, and I noticed this like a little later in my PhD when I became a little more socially aware about life around me but like a lot of my research is very like nitty-gritty like I'm looking at one molecule and that's it and like I might mention public health in the beginning of my papers but that's as far as I really go so I think that a lot of the work that I'm doing is kind of outside of the lab just talking about it um finding outlets to write about it which is again why I'm here um yeah that kind of thing just I think I, I'm in a really privileged position to have education in these environmental issues and have a PhD in ge- or will have a PhD eventually in general. Um, but I'm also very in tuned with the disability community, especially in social media. And so I hear their complaints, their life stories, their their stories of like not being evacuated in the California fires because like evacuation procedures don't account for disability. And so like I hear that and then I can translate this over to my non-disabled colleagues and non-disabled, I don't know, public health officials and then bridge that gap. That's kind of what I hope to do somehow. I'll figure it out. (laughs) So for social media, I was going to ask about that. It sounds like you're using it in in one uh, value added way. I'm just kind of curious in general, you mentioned the blog that you had just kind of your other outside of chemistry world, your other writing experience, communicating to an, to a lay audience and your use of social media and kind of where you see that playing a role for you as a scientist, getting your, your thoughts and your ideas and your findings out. Yeah. So I, I recently learned that I actually really like writing about science, but I just don't like writing about it in journal, like scientific journals. Um, so I start, so there's the chemistry world piece. Um, I started writing for Massive Science a bit. Um, I am working on a few pieces for them to just talk about air quality and atmospheric chemistry, but for a general audience um, and try and tie that back. I really enjoy tying back air pollution and air quality to marginalized groups because I feel like there's such a like when you're communicating science, it's like 
this is this what this paper says and xyz but then like there's never that extra link to how it is relevant like to a broader audience does that make sense i don't know <laughs> but um i was on mute it definitely makes sense yes okay. yes um and so yeah so i do that i also i had that blog and i also am kind of i kind of have a website i've tried to start it it's talking about uh, like profiles disabled scientists that existed in the world before us um no one really knows about disabled scientists like it's not usually disability is either like either they're pushed out of science honestly or it's kind of hidden because it's very stigmatized and so i've written about two scientists so far one is um oh i'm blanking on the name oh no Dorothy Hodgkin, I think she was a Nobel Prize winning um, chemist who had rheumatoid arthritis. And so I talk a little bit about how she dealt with like when her hands couldn't like push switches anymore, how she like innovated like levers so that she can still do her work. Um, But yeah, so I write for that. But a lot of other I'm trying to also graduate. So, you know, I only have so much time. (laughs) Um, And then I'm also in. um, on Twitter a lot. That's kind of my platform of choice. And that's just a lot of like talking to people and saying like, if I'm kind of one of those people who um, quote unquote bullies my school on social media when they do things wrong. Um, It's no secret that I I yell at my school, which is Caltech, uh, because they have a couple issues surrounding racism and some buildings are named after eugenicists and stuff. But I do a lot of that and just bring awareness to intersecting issues. I also founded the first, um, I'm very proud of this, I founded the first advocacy group related to disability on campus. And so that's a brand new group that just started. And we were able to get an accessibility coordinator hired, I think. I I, I attribute that to our work, but I don't know, Caltech might say different. <laughs> that is so awesome. And when you mentioned the pieces you're writing about disabled scientists in the past, is that is that somewhere where people could go and read this? Where is yeah. that? At? Yeah, so it's um I can I forgot my own URL. That's not good. Chronically-invisible.com. Awesome. That's great. I had two more questions for you and one was going back to something you said about kind of this idea of studying one molecule and um, I'm picturing you with a microscope and just very focused on one thing. Uh what is that like? Because as a journalist, I kind of it's it's bouncing from one topic to the next. It's air pollution, it's water, it's people, um, and it's kind of this. It's very good for the curious uh, that that want to bounce around. And I'm wondering what it's like to kind of have this very acute focus on one thing. I think it's for certain people. Like I understand. Like I know people in my lab are like, they're like, oh, this one molecule we just learned it does this, and I'm like, that's cool. Like thumbs up. But um, I'm I'm not. I found out that I'm not really that person. I I also like I like very broad applicable things, and I like connecting more social sciencey aspects to it. Um, but yeah, it's it can be rough. It's kind of like you're zoned in on something, and like you're so specialized in this one topic. And then even if you talk to your lab mate, they're like, please explain it a little more because we don't have the knowledge you have. <laughs> And yeah, it makes um, dinner parties quite difficult. (laughs) So last question, and thank you again for this. This has been 
super cool. I really like talking to you. This was fun. Um, What was the last book you read for fun? Oh, that's hard. So I haven't, I'm so bad at reading. I feel like grad school has made me the worst, like free time, like for fun reader possible. I used to read books so much um, up to high school, college, I kind of dwindled a bit and then grad school just plummeted. So I don't actually have an answer, (laughs) but I do want to read more like, um, oh, maybe I do actually have a book. I can look it up. I do read lots of books about um, like nonfiction books about like, I don't know, disability, because apparently that's what my life is right now. (laughs) So if you don't Um, have a book off the top of your head, I'm going to keep you on the spot. How about a record you listen to lately or a TV show or movie you've watched? Just something that that you can give us that we should check out. TV shows? Hmm. So I, (laughs) I'm kind of a Korean drama newbie here. I, Netflix has Korean dramas now, and I'm, like, so into it. Um, I think it's Uncanny Mysteries. It's this nice little sci-fi, like, thing that is just really amusing to watch. It's, like, action-y, but it's also, like, a little bit of drama. And it's, like, mythical powers. I love it. It's great. <laughs> awesome. Sounds super cool. Well, Crystal, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. This was so fun. That's all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Crystal gave me a lot to think about, about how journalists write about chemicals and exposures. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click the big orange donate button. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher, where you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast production team is myself, Ami Zoda, Samar Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Raya Haddad. We'd like to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeneh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just a chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeneh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak to Dr. Yoshida Ornelas Banhorn, a postdoctoral research associate at USC. Have a great week.